Not long ago, kids would argue over which console was better. Now teenagers whisper cuckold and Nazi like it's considered good manners. We are in the midst of a profound rearrangement of what traits are to be incentivized and rewarded, driven by some 7 billion people, each acting with what they believe to be the best of intentions. But who can foresee with what success and with what result? Nat, we are here with a special edition of Made You Think. Yeah, it is one of our occasional article episodes where instead of digging into a book, we have found an article so interesting and profound that it warrants an episode uh, just as any book would. Although this article is <laughs> bordering on us on a short book uh, in terms of length. Yeah, it's uh, it's like way but why length. Yeah, I think it's about like 15, 20,000 words, which is, you know, a third of a short book. So yeah, it's a phenomenal article, though. Yeah, I'd say this is like top three articles I've ever read. I just loved it. It's very fun to read. It's extremely yep. interesting. It ties in a lot of very diverse ideas, but into kind of a coherent, well, I wouldn't say coherent, but an interesting narrative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the the article is kind of like a Tarantino movie. It's <laughs> jumping all around and a ton of different ideas weaving in and out of each other. And you kind of have to read it a couple of times or at least take notes on it, I think, to really get everything out of it. Totally. And and the article we're talking about is called The Tower um, on a blog called Hotel Concierge. I had not heard of this blog until Nat sent it to me. And then I've gone through most of the archive now. And, uh, you know, I have to say there were a bunch of other articles in there. I think I texted you about some of them where I was like, these could all warrant their own episodes. Like they're long form just like this. And I don't know who this writer is, but they are amazing. Yeah. Long form, super interesting. Very well read. Like they know about a lot of different topics and can weave them together. Yeah, I'm impressed by the references throughout the article. It's just a lot of different books and religious stuff and culture and everything. It's clearly a super smart person. But there's also this interesting element where it's anonymous, right? We have no idea who uh, Hotel Concierge is. Uh, and in that way, you know, it's similar to another blog that and the writing style is actually similar too, but another blog that people may know about called The Last Psychiatrist. And if you don't know that blog, then that should absolutely be what you go do after this episode, because uh, that blog is phenomenal too. And there's a lot of really good episodes or really good. <laughs> it's, it's a blog, not a podcast. A lot of really good <laughs> articles, not episodes. Are there any suspicions on who The Last Psychiatrist is? So we actually know who it is. Oh, okay. There's a Quora thread that doxes him. It's unfortunately like not that interesting of a discovery. It's literally just a psychiatry professor at a college. Oh, okay. Interesting. But they're a great writer. Whoever it is, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal writer. And it's a shame that he took the blog down or he didn't take it down, but he stopped publishing on it a while ago. But yeah, so now there are a couple of these other blogs. So Hotel Concierge is one. Uh, Same as that is another one yep. that write in a similar style and are just really, really awesome blogs. Yeah. And I would say if you're looking for a place to start with TLP, there's an article called uh, Amy Schumer Offers You a Look Into Your Soul. Yeah, that's a phenomenal article. <laughs> that's a really, really good one. So I would, I would start there. Actually, that talks about some similar themes. To this article, there are points where they intersect. Yeah. Well, and it's uncanny how similar the language is at times, too. Yep. But anyway, back to Hotel Concierge. So, I mean, what we kind of wanted to do for this one is because of how many things are going on in this article, 
we thought we would share some of the themes of the piece first and then dig into our highlights and notes and you know discussions from it because i think it, it gives a little bit of structure since this article is a little hard to follow with you know if you're just reading it and i imagine that just listening to our highlights on it could potentially make it even more difficult. So we thought we'd share some of the main themes first, and then we'll touch on more of those through the quotations from the piece as we go. Yep. And it sounds like a good plan. And I think this captures most of them. So the piece is called The Tower, uh, in reference to the Tower of Babel. And it's basically touching on how, you know, in the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, humans build the tower to try to be close to God and in doing so sort of unite humanity under one common area and tongue. Uh, and then God basically destroys the tower and spreads humanity all over the world and makes them all speak different languages so that they can't communicate and collaborate on building this tower to God again. And the analogy that hotel concierge is making, uh, maybe we should just call him like THC or something, but yeah, <laughs> the, the analogy THC is making is to memes and uh, modern communication and how, our ability to talk instantly with everyone about anything anywhere is creating this Tower of Babel-like effect where we are all converging on similar memes. Right. And so you also combine that with, you know, some basic understanding of, I guess, what you would call like virus theory or pathogen theory, where the most virulent pathogen wins and how that's leading to creating outrage culture. And then also how our deep human need to be understood and to feel in control is fueling some of that outrage and rebellion against the different dominant memes in modern culture. As part of that, despite the appearance of diversity, the previously non or what what you might call the unprivileged classes, races, sexes, whatever, uh, are still they're succeeding, but they're succeeding at a game that was designed by that old patriarchy. Yeah, like the old dominance hierarchy, basically. Exactly, exactly. They're moving up the dominance hierarchy, but they're moving up a dominance hierarchy created by the people they're supposedly different from. Uh, and they're mostly doing it by becoming the same as them. So Right, and he gets into why. We can, we'll can we get into that. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that. Uh, because of a lot of this stuff, bigotry is actually an understandable reaction to some of you know the modern memesphere we all need sets of beliefs and having any beliefs are better than none because if you have no beliefs then you just sort of become a uh i think he calls a, a vessel right you become a vessel for other people's ideas and you just start repeating whatever memes you come across or whatever ones seem beneficial there were some great quotes in that section like i think those we'll, we'll get to the quote but it was something where he was repudiating uh, humanism. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be sure to touch on that one. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was an eye opening section for me. I, you know, I, like on the surface, when you say, hey, bigotry is an understandable reaction. Your first thought is like, ah, I don't know. But then he, he did a good job setting that up and like really explaining like why. And at the end of that section, I was like, yeah, I actually agree with you. Yeah. And in addition to becoming a vessel by having no beliefs, having beliefs and doing things is how we, you know, quote unquote, fight chaos, right? So kind of a yep. throwback to 12 rules for life. There, There is always this tendency towards more chaos, uh, just as a function of entropy and, you know, how that ends up playing out societally. And the only way we can actually 
struggle against the tendency towards chaos is one by having beliefs and two doing things. And part of that is that we feel compelled to spread memes, whichever ones we're holding on to, and to have them be understood. And so he suggests that art in all its forms is mostly an attempt to be understood and to spread an idea. To spread like your way of understanding things. Exactly. Your way of seeing the world. Yeah. And then he defines privilege as how easily your art and memes can be understood. So privilege is having and kind of living out the memes of what's dominant in the culture. That was one of the best definitions of privilege I've ever read. Yeah, yeah. I Especially with the dichotomy he sets up before that, which we'll get into about why some of the lazier definitions of privilege, like, oh, if you're white, you're privileged, or oh, if you're rich, you're privileged, are, you know, kind of lazy and ineffectual. Right. Uh, this definition really stood out to me, too. Um, and then the last thing is that multiculturalism and diversity are kind of counter to their own goals, because by preventing assimilation, they enforce the existing ruling class. So... We'll get into much more about what that means, but that was really interesting to me, too. And it's something that, uh, and I don't like a lot of his stuff, but if you ever listen to Thaddeus Russell's podcast. I still haven't, but I know you've recommended it before, like to at least check out. Yeah, it comes up whenever this topic comes up because, and I, I didn't get what he was saying the first time I listened to some of these arguments, but I get it more now. But he kind of has this whole thing that... uh like a, a lot of white liberals who are fighting for diversity don't actually want diversity. They just want all the other races to act like whites, right? Mm, yeah, that's a valid argument. Or or they only want to, you know, give, you know, spots of their company to the like black people or Latinos or whatever who act like them, right? They don't want different cultures. They want the same culture in different colors. And so in doing that, right, you're enforcing this sort of, white European dominance hierarchy even further by saying that no matter what your background is, you have to conform to like our culture. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get into, I think we'll get into that more. <laughs> we'll get into it. But yeah, I think, I mean, I, again, it was, that was another section where I probably walked in with a different opinion than I walked out. So that's a sign of a, or at least I was considering a different opinion at the end. So that's a uh, sign of a, of a well-written persuasive article. Yeah. Agreed. All right, but let's dive right in. So I don't even know how we dive into this exactly, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, so the article opens with you know a quotation from the story of uh, is it Babel or Babel? I always said Babel, but I could be okay. off on that. I'm going to say Babel. Just maybe we'll be wrong, and maybe we'll piss somebody off. But someone can let us know. That'll be yeah, yeah. If we mess that up, but also just starting off. Um, I love this. I'm just going to quote this, not because it's super important to the to the um, article. I guess it, it sets the stage, but just there's so many things in here I like. So this is from the article. The Judeo-Christian capital God, robed and bearded, opinionated, deadlifts, thematically male, is the avatar of civilization. Just check the year. Even so, his omnipotence is not uncontested. He knows this. You should see what he did to the guys with the golden calf. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But just as Nix had preceded Zeus, that means the darkness was already there, and the house always wins at the second law of thermodynamics. So there are a couple of things in there I love. Number one, not that relevant, but the deadlifts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I was like, this is almost like you're basically saying God looks like Taleb. No. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, because just the bearded and yeah, yeah I don't know. I just yeah. love that. It was like it, yeah. <laughs> it was like such a 
classic uh, way of describing God, but then I've never heard the deadlifts part in that description. So it's perfect, though. It just gives you a sense of his writing style, his or her writing style. Yeah, it's probably it. I would guess this is a he, but it could be totally wrong. Yeah, I mean, I somebody out there will call me sexist for saying this, but the writing style comes off extremely male. Yeah. So I, okay. I, I don't. Is that sexist? I don't know. I don't know. Everything is sexist, right? <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll get back to that later in the article. Yeah. But yeah, I feel confident at least saying it's a very masculine writer. Yes. Uh, okay. And then the second thing in there that's probably a little bit more relevant, just in terms of interesting little tidbit, was uh, like I had never thought about like the whole "let there be light" thing, but then thinking there was probably there was already darkness there, right? So right, God, even in even if you look at it biblically, was not really there first like there was something there before god and that's kind of your primordial chaos or whatever you want to call it yeah or there was at least something before light right exactly and then if i was going to say if you think about it less from a religious or mythological standpoint and more from a scientific standpoint it's always takes you back to that question of like well what happened before the big bang or what was there before the big bang and yeah, it's, I mean, it's just an interesting little tidbit. I don't think there's any like answer in this article <laughs> that would be above <laughs> his pay grade, but uh, it's just an interesting thought. And, you know, I just had never thought about the let there be light thing as like that would mean that there was darkness before. Well, and even more so, it actually ties into a lot of what comes through in the rest of the article, this idea of chaos and entropy. Yeah. Because, you know, what he's suggesting is that you know, just as Neeks preceded Zeus, that means the darkness was already there. And the house always wins at the second law of thermodynamics, right? And the second law of thermodynamics is entropy. Yeah. Right? I think I'm right about that. Yeah, it's the entropy will always increase. Exactly. So what he's basically saying is that, yes, you know, in this story, God created light and earth and everything, but he was creating it from darkness. And there will always be that tendency back towards chaos, and that ends up being kind of a pretty big uh, theme throughout the rest of the article is that we can have order, but we will always tend back towards chaos and we have to deliberately fight against the chaos. Right. Like it takes energy to fight against the chaos, but if you don't do anything, then the chaos will will take over. Right. And that, that ends up becoming a big part of his move into these discussions of our identity and kind of like our politics and our opinions, because he mentions these two extremely powerful human desires, right? Which he says are acceptance and control. And he calls, and there's like Greek names for these two. So Eros is like the loving acceptance and Ananke is the sort of control. And he says that uh, only when we see ourselves reflected by the universe, can we believe that it is part of us. And only when the universe is predictable, can we believe that it is part of us? So for us to feel part of the universe, for us to feel like we belong, we need to feel like the universe reflects us or see, see ourselves reflected in it and that we have some control over it, that there's some predictability. And without those two, then one, I think we tend towards chaos and two, you know, we can feel very unhappy and unfulfilled. Yeah. And well, and this kind of, I mean, he even calls us out, but it's somewhat related to like Freudian ideas. Yeah. Where like the control aspect, uh, Ananke, right? Ananke? Yeah, Ananke. Ananke uh, kind of is like the ego. Um, is it ego or super ego? I think it's super ego. Super ego. I'm not 100% sure about that. Yeah, I'm not fully up to speed on my Freud. Yeah, I mean, it all got tossed out, so I don't take it too seriously anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a good heuristic. Like in this article, he's kind of using it as a heuristic. But yeah, it's, a lot of it is probably disproven, yeah. it seems. But I like this idea that, you know, Ananke hates nothing but entropy. 
It rewards us for turning atoms into tools and tools into appendages. So much the better if those atoms comprise other humans. V's the high of domination. And then a little bit further on, Ananke compels us to learn, to make the universe predictable, to gain control over time. What happens next? And space, what happens next? So we have this very human desire for control, and that is why we do things, right? Right. That's why we build tools and try to control other people and try to figure out what's going to happen next, because this at least feeling of control is really important for us having any degree of life satisfaction. Right. Arguably, even why we read or, you know, write or, yeah, do anything. Yeah. Because he, he mentions how it relates to meaningless work too, right? Minimum minimum wage jobs are worse because of their pointlessness more than because of their indignity. Work harder, better, faster, stronger, and no one cares. Screw up and you're replaced without a missed beat. So you you have no Ananke there, right? You have no control over your future or your fate because no matter what you do, you're not going to get any more power in that environment. Well, and that's also... That's probably also the flaw with uh, like socialism, right? Right, and communism. It's kind of a similar, yeah. It's like the exact same type of situation, right? It's like there's not really upside in your work, and I mean, I guess you don't have the whole screw up and you're replaced situation either. But you don't really have control. You're just like, I guess that's the definition of a co- being like a cog in the wheel, yeah, a cog in the machine, right? It's like, yeah, that's literally what it is. Yeah, exactly. And it actually relates a lot to the the myth of Sisyphus, right? Which we did a couple of episodes ago. Yes, exactly. Because he's, you know, he's got this next section where he says that uh, no direction, no story. The days blur together until arthritis leaves you crippled. Stoned summers don't get you off the hook. Duration neglect compresses both good and bad sensations. No matter how pleasant, when nothing is happening, the superego starves. There's a reason couples fight on vacation. So we've got this kind of element to a lot of our lives where there needs to be, you know, not just control and reflection, but almost novelty. And a narrative. And a narrative, yeah, a story to it. Yep. Because he suggests, I don't know if I find this fully convincing, but that there is, that the only way to kind of be happy when you die is if you pick a single kind of like goal set and grind towards it for your whole life because <laughs> if, if you're constantly jumping around and being a dilettante the way he puts it is being a dilettante is too easy flat lines don't form memories you've got no you know arc to your history no story no narrative if you're just jumping around all the time right yeah and i guess i mean i can see where he's coming from on that but at the same time i feel like there's a lot of people who would disagree with that yeah but i see like the thing that uh, maybe he's trying to say because he has this line here uh, reinventing yourself between brunches feels good. I think there's a difference between like, let's say you pursue 10 different goals throughout your lifetime, but you pursue them in like a focused manner and, and, and you know, you conquer one mountain and then move on to the next one. That's a very different type of bouncing around than being like, uh, I, I think we've all, you know, we all have friends or have seen people who are like every month getting into like a new thing without having the time to like have any depth in any of those particular things. Um, and there's a big difference between that, uh, at least in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. And it it does, I think, um, it's more about, yeah, that like jumping around, constantly trying to totally change yourself on like a macro level. Right. Because the sentence that follows that is, you know, the illusion of control until you've dreamt the same dreams too many times and they no longer get you high. Right. 
you, like you're just getting excited about the the goals you're setting for yourself and the vision that you have, but you're not actually doing anything about it, right? Whereas the people who are actually making progress, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill are the ones who get to look back and have this great story of their life to tell. Right. Yeah. Like I can imagine um, like, okay, here's somebody who's done a bunch of different things. Obviously it's like the example everyone goes to, but Elon Musk has done like many yeah. different companies. Well, yeah, I don't think he's going to be, he's going to look back on his life and say, Oh, I wish I just stuck with payments my whole life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he has a lot of different mountains that he's climb climbing currently as well, but yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than he's framing in the in the article, but I I see his point. Cuz his point at least in my opinion and my interpretation of it is the, you know, the people who are like a fitness trainer one month and like the next month they're building a doing an ICO and like the next month are starting like a social media agency and the next month are doing a nomad life or you know like you know everybody knows those kind of people yep and that's a very different thing than trying to again using the elon musk example build a revolutionary payments company then a revolutionary car company and a revolutionary space company like that's a very different set of conquering different mountains yeah so yeah there's there's probably some middle ground there but I see what he's saying. Yeah, well, and I think part of what he's getting at based on where it goes in the next section is that you kind of like need to pick something, right? Because if you don't yeah. pick anything, then you're just going to be like running around aimlessly. Right. And that's not really a desirable situation to be in. Because, I mean, one one issue he starts to get into here is that it's kind of like the reason God destroyed the Tower of Babel was that babble babel whatever i'm just gonna keep changing it up um, <laughs> keep people guessing keep people guessing <laughs> was that he you know capital h wanted to kind of like punish this consolidation under one belief system in one language and then judaism right so thc is saying that judaism was designed to not spread right right it's got all of these uh and, and you know when we're talking about tower of babel we're talking about the god of judaism right so it's like yahweh old testament thc is saying why else would he confuse mankind's language why would he demand obedience to 613 commandments circumcision what was judaism with rabbinical prohibition against interfaith marriage or proselytization except god's attempt to create a religion that would not spread it failed as it always does the house always wins at the second law of thermodynamics right so there's this recognition that if something isn't carefully designed, then it can spread fairly naturally, right? Like that's sort of the whole idea of memes that they're going to naturally evolve and spread. And so if that happened to Judaism, right, as with any religion, then it will necessarily get weaker over time, right? I think we've seen that with Christianity just in the last couple hundred years, right? Whereas uh, a belief system that's much more rigid and, you know, kind of harder to mess with will not spread as well, but will maintain its consistency, right? There's a bit of uh, skin in the game undertones there too. Yeah, like what? Like we saw in, uh, well, in skin in the game, right? I would say there's a bit of, um, what was the concept called? Tyranny of the minority. Oh, yeah. Where if you have, uh, like the whole kosher example comes to mind here, where, yeah, you might have created these rules to like ensure they don't spread, but then because of tyranny of the mi minority, and for those who are not familiar, I guess in simple terms, the idea is if you have, uh, let's say, kosher, for example, it's easier for a company to just make all their products kosher than to have separate kosher and non-kosher products because people who don't keep kosher can eat the kosher products and the people who eat the kosher products only will also eat the kosher products. So it's cheaper and easier for them to do that. And so because of that, you know, sort of kind of simple setup, 
most of the foods that we eat, I think that's true, right? Most of the foods we eat mm-hmm. are kosher, even though the num- percentage of people who keep kosher in the US is just not very high. I think it's, I would imagine, in the 1% range. Yeah, I think almost any packaged food that is not explicitly non-kosher, right? So if you get like canned shrimp or something, then obviously sure. it's not kosher. But most other stuff, yeah, they're, it's just they just do it kosher because it's easier than not doing it. Right. So it's almost the this way of keeping, uh, like almost by keeping these very strict rules, it made this concept spread virally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That, that came to mind when I was reading that, reading that section. Right. Well, and I think the biggest thing here is that you, you know, part of what uh, I think he's THC suggesting might have been part of the religious design was to create a religion that would stay coherent. Right. And that would block out other information from coming into it. Because if you have this free flow of information, belief systems can't hold up. You'll inherently run into contradictions. And then that's why he starts to criticize humanism, because it doesn't really give any prescriptions. Well, exactly. So I I, I was going to say it's more of like the vacuum idea where having a like ideas that don't take a concrete stand uh, one way or another, which would be humanism, right? In, right. in a lot of ways. Are, are almost a vacuum and are pretty easy to overpower, it seems. Yeah. At least in the way that he's framed it here. Well, they're just, they're fairly weak belief systems. Right. In that they don't, they'll never motivate someone to do anything. You're not going to be particularly committed to sticking with it. But if you're, you know, raised Jewish and you stick to uh, the Torah religiously and you follow all the rules, everything really carefully, you're, you've got an extremely easy decision-making system, right? Because you know pretty much what to do in all situations. Right. But if you're trying to be like humanist and super open to everything or whatever, then you kind of have no answers <laughs> for what to do, right? There's a there's a postmodernist like relation here too, right? Where if you, if you take every idea, like let's just use like a simple phrase, like there are no bad ideas <laughs> or bad questions. And stuff. Right, right. Like that's, I don't know. I feel like that's a, that's a humanist type of idea. I guess humanism is somewhat related to postmodernism in that sense. Yeah. And we should define humanism for everyone too. Exactly. I think we should I think we should do that. Um how would you define it? What is a good way to define that? Should we just look it up? Yeah, I was I was gonna give the like official definition. Okay. But basically it's a philosophical and I'm just borrowing stuff from Wikipedia right now. So philosophical stance emphasizing the value and agency of human beings and generally preferring critical thinking and evidence over acceptance of dogma and superstition. So it's definitely a generally good thing, right, that you should yeah. reason for yourself instead of using dogma and superstition. But if you try to reason through every single situation you come across, like that's going to be exhausting and a waste of time, right? Well, that and then you also start thinking yourself into knots, right? So uh, like the one that always comes to mind for me is when like the whole uh, upbringing versus like, what's the line between blaming someone's upbringing for their bad actions and then versus blaming them yeah. for their bad actions, right? And like, you can think you're, you can think about that problem all day, but that's not going to give you like an action plan, right? Right? Because <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, on like, if you think about it, you can like you can trace everything to somebody's you know upbringing or genetics, and then say it's not their fault, and then so then the logical conclusion is we should not have prisons and. There's nothing anybody can actually be held responsible for. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't help you. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help you at all. And he's got this great line where he says, uh, when someone slaps your hypothetical girlfriend's ass in the proverbial club, what does humanism say you should do? At least toxic masculinity has an answer, right? Right. 
And he, he's kind of getting at this idea that he explains a few sentences later that if you don't have a code of conduct, one will be provided for you. We're all going to respond and act in certain ways. And if you haven't actually chosen a way to behave, you're just going to pick up the memes of, you know, those around you. Exactly. Or you're following a set of memes that you consciously are not necessary, you know, not necessarily maybe you're aware, but you're not going to publicly say you're following. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he's introducing this idea that if you have not thought about your kind of like your philosophy, your code of conduct, one will be given to you. And then with this free flow of information, and we all have this kind of uh, what he calls a suppressed mimetic immune system. And we can talk more about what that means in a minute, but it's statistically inevitable that every meme will attain its most infectious form because ideas will you know, shift and morph as they're being discussed. And the ideas that are more palatable and more, you know, mimetically viral will take hold and they will spread more. And I guess we should probably say, you know, for anyone who's confused by our use of the word meme and mimetics, a meme is like, it's a a term introduced by Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene to reference an idea that spreads through a culture, you know, like a gene spreads through the animal world. So, a meme is just any idea that we can, you know, share amongst each other. So, you know, there's memes for, you know, like political correctness is a meme and, uh, you know, democracy is a meme and just basically anything that we can talk about and share and an idea that can evolve, but that lives by being spread among people. That's a meme. And we talked about it more in Beginning of Infinity as well. And Sapiens a little bit. Oh, yeah. And Sapiens. But yeah, any any meme will will reach its most infectious form through the rapid transfer of information. And you can actually think of this genetically too, right? Evolution is much more efficient the faster the animal or it evolution happens faster, the faster the animals can breed. Right. Right. Because they can go through more iterations. And so the more we can communicate, the more iterations memes can go through and the more infectious they can become. And so because of that, we're entering into this era where Memes are becoming more and more viable through the free flow of information. We all have a suppressed mimetic immune system because we're consuming all of these viral memes. And so if you are not deliberate in the ideas that you choose to hold on to, you will just kind of be infected by the dominant memes of your social group, your you know news outlet, whatever. And then you will just become a vessel for those memes. You will just spread them uh, without any particular deliberate choice on your part. Right. And that's a fascinating idea (laughs) that like it makes you it makes you realize uh, the sources of your information matter so, so, so much. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're watching CNN all day or, you know, whatever your choice of bad news news station or if you're just watching TV news all day, let's just start there. Um, Which nobody listening to this podcast would do. Exactly. Yep. But your source of information matters so much. And then the second thing it, it brought to mind for me was that whole idea of do the ideas control you or do you control the ideas? Yeah. And I would say he's he's pretty forcefully arguing here that the ideas control you. And again, this takes us back to, you know, some of the other books that we've covered, but it gets hard to talk about like the self and I right. in these contexts, but I'm going to use those words anyway. <laughs> the only thing that I actually control is my sources of my inputs, basically. And then I become a vessel for the ideas that take control of me. Yeah. And I love the evolutionary way of thinking about this. Yeah, well, the evolutionary way of thinking about it and also just what he gets into more in the next section about this idea around 
virality, right? Right. And it perfectly explains why we see so much kind of like popular outrage, I guess we'd say. Yeah. Because what he explains is that a pathogen that is too restrained will lose out in competition to a more aggressive strain that diverts more host resources to its own reproduction. So if you have two viruses, the one that can get the host to use more resources to spread it will naturally spread more because more energy is getting put into spreading it. And this is where a lot of the outrage or clickbait type of news is really tough to stop. Yeah. I mean, I, w- I would say he's arguing it's almost impossible. It is impossible to stop. Well, well, I was going to say like part of it too is that I think social media has an effect here where by publicly committing to these ideas, you've made it more expensive to adopt them. And in doing so, you've increased their virality because once someone is committed to them publicly, they are more invested in spreading them. And so it becomes more spreadable. And there's high switching costs. Yeah, very high switching costs. Yeah, There's like, can you switch teams? Uh, it's tough. Right. Well, I mean, it, it's like, uh, it's kind of like Islam, right? There's, you know, a law against apostasy. If you leave the faith, you have to be put to death. Right. And that's a pretty strong deterrent uh, for, you know, leaving the faith. And, and also, I think with Islam, you, the mother or the father can pass the religion on to their child. But in Judaism, it's only the mother. Right. And so, you know, in, in Islam, one man could have tons of wives and, you know, spread the religion to tons of children in Judaism you know, a given mother is only going to have so many kids, right? Right. And to be fair, if you're uh, Orthodox Jewish, I think you have to have sex every Saturday and you can't use birth control. So like they still have a decent number of kids, but nowhere on the same scale. But still there's a limit. Exactly. Yeah. Of what you can do in Christianity or Islam. Yeah. Well, and then I was going to say having that high switching cost, like aka we kill you if you switch. Um, mm-hmm. That's the highest switching cost ever. Can you imagine if a startup had that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd have no churn. Your churn would be zero. <laughs> it's a very intense non-compete clause for your employees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, not to joke about this, but anyway, the like having that high of a switching cost makes the religion that much stronger because you, you basically can only add members. Yep. <laughs> Like as, And also, if it spreads through either the man or the woman, then that effectively means everyone who reproduces gives birth to more Muslims, and then you can't lose them, or you probably lose an incredibly small percentage of them. Right. Yeah. So it's just an inherently viral religion. Yeah, because he's got this line here that as long as transmission continues despite the virulence, right, despite the bad sides, the more virulent ones will have the advantage. So here's a here's a question for you that I so I'm not as familiar with how weirdly I'm more familiar with how this works in Islam, even though I don't know nearly as much about the religion. Um, how has Christianity spread at the level that it has globally? Is it just the missionary aspect of it? Yeah, I think it's proselytization, right? Yeah, but there's not the same switching costs, right? Yeah, there's definitely not as intensive switching costs, but there I think there's strong cultural switching costs. Okay. Right. Well, I know back in the day, right, the in the Spanish Inquisition and like I think in Italy too, there were people could like in Catholicism, it was I don't know if it was like against the religion to switch, but there mm-hmm. was definitely a I think societal switching cost is probably the right way to put it. Yeah. Well, I think part of it with Christianity too is probably that you can be Christian while effectively behaving like an atheist, right? Mm. Like you can say you're Christian and you don't actually have to do anything. Right. Whereas you know, if you, I guess like technically you can do that for any religion, but at least 
within, you know, if we go back 200 years, right, you could say you're Christian and have like very little stuff you need to do. But if you're Jewish, I think you would you'd be living predominantly with Jews and there would be a lot more pressure to behave in a manner consistent with the faith and probably for Islam, too. Right. I think it'd be hard to live in a, you know, fully Muslim city and not, you know, regularly pray. And like if you if you weren't keeping halal right while living in uh, Saudi Arabia or something, someone would notice. Or if you were drinking or. Yeah, exactly. Or if you were drinking. Yep. I mean, I remember when I was in Dubai, they check your ID when you buy alcohol, because if you have uh, an Emirati ID, you're not allowed to buy it. Right. You have to have a foreign ID. Although one of one of my employees is originally from Dubai. Mm-hmm. And I was asking him about that. And uh, he, I mean, he was basically saying it's one of those laws that it's on the on the surface. You can't like say you drink. Right. But there are a lot of people who like a much higher percentage of the population than we would expect from what we hear about it. Yeah. Still drink like there's like a black market for alcohol. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's quite popular. Yep. But yeah, it's I, I when I went to Dubai, it was the same exact thing. It's like the hotels and then certain there's like only a couple stores, it seems that you can actually buy alcohol like just to consume. Yeah. But the, the main idea here is that the more intense ideas will actually spread better because they demand more resources from the host. And by demanding more resources, they get spread more. And that's why we see religions like, uh, I think, Islam and Christianity spread so dominantly compared to, you know, something like, I love Jainism, right? (laughs) Yeah. Where there's no no demands on them. There's no demand on Jains to spread the religion, right? It's fairly personal. Because Buddhism would be kind of similar. Yeah. But I don't, there's not really any memes in Buddhism to spread it, are there? Right. Yeah. Oh, you're saying it's like Jainism. Yes. Definitely. Well, I was saying the meme with them is with Buddhists is almost like there is no meme. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there is no spoon. Yeah. Although there could be, that could be a powerful meme in its own way. Yeah. Well, I think it's hard because if you, I, you know, from reading this, it seems like by trying to focus too hard on having no memes, you become particularly susceptible to you know, being a vessel, being a, a meme carrier, right? Right. You just get sucked into the ideas of those around you and you just become, you know, a replicator instead of a kind of designer. Or you start spreading the meme that there are no memes, yet you're not following a meme. Yeah, that's another good one. That's like a strange loop. <laughs> <laughs> I see Hofstetter's name on the page here, so that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but I mean, building on this, you know, and this is where we get into art, right? He's saying that part of what we are all trying to do all the time is find ways to spread our memes, right? Like, because a a good meme wants to be spread and we want to share it. And also kind of going back to elephant in the brain, I think there is this human desire to share information because it shows that you are part of the in-group, right? It shows that you're useful, that you're, you know, valuable and all of that. And the way THC puts it, art is compressed communication. The better the compression with regards to both perceived fidelity and amount of information contained, the more artful the art. And so, and going on further, art is the way by which man purifies his soul from chaos. It is his revenge against nature. He decides which memes of consciousness to spread and he takes the rest to the grave. And I kind of feel that way about writing, Mm. right? Where it's like, Writing is, you know, purifying your mind from chaos. You've got all of these ideas floating around up there that feel like there's some cohesion to them. And then the act of writing, you know, tries to pull some order from the chaos. 
And oh, totally. We can probably apply that to just about every area of art, right? I mean, that's what we're doing on this podcast. Is like we're that, I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say any form of media is doing that in some ways. And, and we do that with this podcast. I'm sure after reading this article, you had a million thoughts swirling through your head. And then we had to come up with something cohesive to talk about. <laughs> exactly. We were going to talk about this article for a couple hours, whether or not it was recording. So we may as well record it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it forces you to think about it more in a more structured format. Uh, and so does writing. Like you can't just write an article with all the random thoughts flitting through your head. That would be like a schizophrenics article. <laughs> that would be a very, very strange thing to read. It wouldn't be a well, actually, to his point here, that article, it may spread for like the novelty factor, but it wouldn't spread. It wouldn't hold, you know, right? Like if you saw an article like that, you might share it on Twitter. Or you might send it to a few people like, what can you believe? Like, like, what the hell is this? But it wouldn't be something 10 years later that you're still talking about. Uh, whereas a very well-written article can definitely live for many, many, many years Yeah, and change other memes and spread in people's minds. Yeah. Well, and, you know, to that point, he says that, you know, all art wants is to be understood, right? Yep. The whole point of art is to convey some idea to be understood through, you know, the consumption of that art. And this is where we get to that definition of privilege, where uh, he says that, I think ease of having one's art understood is a defensible conception of privilege. And that's like a very interesting idea, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, how much of your culture can easily understand the type of art you want to create and then how easily they can is a sign of, you know, the amount of privilege that you have in that society because you need to do less work to be understood and being understood is a huge part of that, you know, satisfaction that we talked about earlier on in the episode. Right. And that definition makes so much more sense than a single dimension like gender or race or something like that. Yeah. I love that definition because, I mean, it makes so much sense. There are people who, I mean, who, let's say, went to or go to Harvard or CMU even who are, you know, a minority that would be considered disadvantaged. And I would argue that they would have a less difficult time being understood than somebody who maybe dropped out of high school and lives in West Virginia and is white and lives in a town where 90% of the people are on disability. Right. Like they would have a much harder time being understood in the mainstream culture. And I like how he ties this to movies and Hollywood too, mm. saying it kind of, it kind of makes sense. I, I think maybe that was a little bit later, right? Uh, it was earlier actually. Oh, it was earlier. Okay. Yeah. The stuff from Gwern. Yes. Yeah. Where it makes sense that Hollywood continues despite what a lot of Hollywood people say um, about like paying lip service to diversity and things like that. It, it kind of from a, it kind of makes sense that they continue. I mean, most movies still star a white lead female and male Yeah, in most movies and that and there's a reason for that. And it's not necessarily like racism is why they're doing that. No, it's just, you know, who's going to consume your art, right? Right. Your target culture that you're going after. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because what does he say? Uh, yeah, I guess it's a little different because he's he's part of what he's talking about too here is that Quern seems to think that if we banned Guardians of the Galaxy, the relevant audience would switch to Douglas Hofstadter. Oh, right. The assumption here is that nonfiction exists distinct from and more truthful than fiction. I don't buy it because I think Quern is saying that like old art is better and people we should stop producing art because. People should just stick to the old art. Stick to the old art. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have enough art. There's more than we'll ever be able to consume in our lifetime. So we should stop making it. People should enjoy the old stuff. And it's like, that's kind of silly, right? Because, you know, one, 
that further reinforces the old dominance hierarchy. Right. And, you know, the way it's existed for before. I mean, I, I think the, the best example of this whole ease of having one's art understood as a defensible conception of privilege is go look at, you know, any art that is pre-Renaissance. And it's just like a million paintings of Jesus on the cross. Like there's nothing else. Right. Right. It's just different angles of Jesus on the cross. And like maybe you get, you know, Mary or Joseph or somebody else, but it's literally just the Bible. Like that's it. Right. It Okay. To be fair, obviously there's lots of other art, but none of it was popular and none of it's like lasted in the same way in museums and stuff that this art has. A big part of that was the church was funding most of that art, right? Oh, well, I think funding it, but it's also, I mean... The church was so powerful. It, it was the dominant meme. It was the dominant meme. Exactly. That was yeah. the, that was the easiest meme to be understood. And so right. those, you know, if you were religious, that was privilege, right? Like being Christian was privilege. Yeah, like being an atheist or a um, you know, I guess a Gnostic or something, something that was like not mainstream Christianity even would would have been somebody who uh I guess what's the opposite of privilege, like not having privilege. Yeah, unprivileged. Unprivileged. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being, you know, being a Jew in Europe in, you know, the 1500s, like it's, you're not a privileged member of society. It's like all the white Christians who are making all of this art. But I, I like that he's trying to create a more nuanced definition because he's got this paragraph where he says, so who has more privilege, a cis white hetero billionaire with full checklist depression or an unemployed transgender black woman who, despite this, is basically content? Either the billionaire has less privilege, in which case privilege is a Harrison Bergeron happiness tax, or the suicidal person has more privilege, in which case how much does privilege matter really, right? Yeah, it's a really good way of framing it. <laughs> yeah, and he mentions that he's seen Upper East Side kids less fulfilled by their iPads than Sub-Saharan kids without running water uh, were with Catch the Rock, right? <laughs> like, I think anybody who's traveled or who lives in the United States has felt that even themselves yeah have you ever had that feeling when you travel where you see people who have way less than you and you're like they're they look happier than i am <laughs> oh yeah they, they just <laughs> yeah. seem much more content right yep and there is an element there of like because have you i assume you've seen this like the stats on suicides like who commits suicide i had not actually it's mostly wealthy people hmm. right like it's mostly wealthy-ish well-off people uh poor people are much less likely to commit suicide Blacks in the U.S. are much less likely to commit suicide. Like, uh, like middle-aged people who are still like struggling through life are less likely to commit suicide. Hmm. Interesting. It's predominantly like wealthier, you know, teenagers and early twenties, and then people who are like end of life. And when you look at areas going through war, suicide and depression rates go down. Like. I think they did some of these surveys during World War II, maybe it was. And during the London bombings, people were happier and committed less suicide than in the years after the bombings. Right. So it's like being well off is not necessarily the ant or the solution for happiness. Right. Or neither is. Uh, yeah, exactly. Money is not necessarily doesn't automatically make you happy. I think I guess is a, probably the better way to word it. Yeah. He has a section here uh, that's very much related to that. So from the article, saved wealth buffers against tragedy, but suffering finds a way. Hedonic treadmill is the buzzword. As monoxide salesman Thomas Ligotti puts it, we do not have the power to make our lives monumentally better, only monumentally worse. Yep. There is this one point he makes, though, which I think is important. And it actually challenges something Taleb mentioned in Skin in the Game, you know, 20 episodes ago. Yeah. Which is that 
were were amnesic to routine and memories of eat mm. labor sleep blur together in the rearview mirror but the important yet oft forgotten ob- obverse is that independent of happiness wealth buys freedom from routine yeah that's very true a night at the opera is no more fun than pizza and brewskis but the former is novel for a time and the latter soon fades from memory Right, so there is value to novelty, and we do put some value on it, even if like our hedonic measurement during that experience is, you know, still like a seven out of ten. If it creates like a little placeholder, you know, in our life narrative, like oh, that's when I went to Antarctica, right? Or, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it's like a solid half of the trip to Antarctica sucks. Like for anyone who's thinking of going, yeah. <laughs> You literally have to spend two days stuck on like a not that big ship, just like walking around, eating and like getting thrown up and down in these like massive waves. If you really think about it, a lot of traveling, most traveling. Yeah. Yeah. is like actually not that exciting or not that fun. But like there are definitely moments that are fun for sure, but they stick out and you'll always remember them. Because I guess they're novel. Right. Well, there's uh, this guy, Nick Winter. He's the guy who created uh, it's called. It's that game where you like write JavaScript code to play a video game. Okay. I'm sure people have seen it, but he wrote a short book called The Motivation Hacker, which was like a, it was basically a book on him trying to, you know, hack his motivation to get a ton of stuff done over the course of a few months. And one of the things he mentioned in it is that he does this like enjoyment tracking when he's trying new things. So he'll like check in with himself every hour and rate like one to 10 how fun the last hour was and then like what percent of that time was fun. And so he mentioned that, you know, from those analyses, he would do things like whitewater rafting or skydiving. And even though he would remember the event as super fun, if he looked back at his recordings, there would only be like an extremely small amount of time that was actually, you know, the fun part, right? Whereas something like playing a video game was consistently fun, right? It, right. It, it was a lower peak, but it was fun for a significantly greater period of time. And so from that, he was saying he was avoiding doing some of that, like, you know, skydivey type stuff. But after reading this, I'm kind of like, well, there is some value to the peak end heuristic, right? Like you can try to override it with logic. But if that is how our brain works, then you should try to create some of these good experiences because, you know, that is how you're going to remember the world, right? You don't remember the world like a spreadsheet. That's a very good point. And I, until you put it that way, I had never been able to make this thought concrete, but I'd had it like floating around in the ether of my brain somewhere, uh, which was uh, somebody once told me like, they, they were like, well, you know, the, we were talking about starting companies versus like staying and working at like a you know bigger company or more stable job. That was, you know, let's say high paying, right? And if you look at the two, um, this person was looking at it purely from a financial standpoint and was like, if you look at success rates for a lot of startups, they're not that great, but the big ones hit, right? So, you know, you could end up doing very well. His his take on it was if you stay at the, you know, the large company job that pays well and you just do that for a long time, whether it's you stay at the same company or you move around to different companies, you know, you're net at the end of the day, you'll, you'll probably end up making more money. You know, I, I disagreed with that part even at the time, but that's what his point was. And I was like, yeah, I can see what you're saying. But now like this, but I still inherently viewed it as wrong. And I think what you just said pointed out to why you will never get those peaks, right? You'll never get those like the novelty there because every day will be some, I mean, maybe you will get some of it, but you'll never get the same level as if you are, um, it doesn't have to just be a startup, but if you're sort of climbing your own mountain. 
in some way. Yeah. Well, I think about this too when I interact with people who I went to college with who have been doing the same job for a few years. And they just have like very few, you know, signposts to put in the ground for the last few years of their life to like, you know, look back on as these big memories. Right. Right. Because they've mostly been doing the same thing. It's like do the job, go to the bar after, go out on the weekend. Right. Like maybe you took a couple of trips, but there's significantly fewer signposts. Whereas I find with the at least with, you know, startup entrepreneurial work, you're changing around a lot more. Right. And then if you're also doing some amount of, you know, travel or whatever else along the way or launching things, right, you've got these other signposts that come in. And even if you're making less money, I think you end up happier just because you have more you can look back on. Right. Right. Where were we? I don't remember what we were reading, but there's, you know, the experiencing self and the remembering self. Right. Uh, What was that? The you guys can tell us. Yeah. (laughs) It might have been an article. Actually, it might be another hotel concierge article that might actually be where I'm getting it from. Um, but uh, the you know the remembering self needs those signposts, right? Because a big part of who we think of ourselves as, and when we try to assess whether or not we're like happy, it's you know what are these signposts we can look back at, and we kind of need some of those changes to to look back on. The funny thing is, even I have a couple entrepreneurial friends who've tried to do like you know big ish things, like things that were nowhere close like they were basically developing like truly new technology yeah and you know one of them has like his company completely fell apart and you know like they they did raise some money and stuff but they were um the technologies did not work right so the they just weren't able to keep going and the funny thing is like he loved the experience like there's i'm sure there's a part of him that's like oh i wish we could have made it work but he has so many signposts to look back at and he's doing other cool stuff now but even though he's not, let's say, super wealthy or anything, right? I would say probably if he worked at a, you know, he could have gone and worked at Google or Facebook or somewhere, probably, you know, by this point made a lot more money, but he wouldn't have any signposts. And I think you're right. Like the remembering self just needs like to tell that narrative. I know it's obviously narrative fallacy when we tell people like our story and even when we tell ourselves our story. Yeah. Um, there's obviously tons of narrative fallacy happening, but we kind of need it to just have a sense of self. Yeah. Need it. And like it's. I think it is meaningful, right? Right. Like, even if it is a story and even if it is kind of a made up narrative, it is still the narrative, right? Right. And that's, you know, not necessarily a bad thing because, again, it does give you some like meaning, right? You care about your story, right? And you want those signposts. There, there's another interesting kind of corollary here, which is there's a great book called, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Ooh, I've heard of it. I have not read it. Yeah, so it's a really cool book. It's by this guy, Josh Foyer, who decided he wanted to compete in the U.S. National Memory Championship. And he was a reporter. And so he found one of the like international memory grandmasters, this guy called Ed Cook, and trained with him for a year to you know become as good as possible at memorizing things, like memorizing a deck of cards as fast as possible and remembering a ton of names at a party and all of these different things. And uh, spoiler, he he wins the competition. So in a year, he becomes like the reigning memory champion in the US. But one of the things that comes up in the book is uh, Ed Cook mentions that when he plans out parties, he uses techniques from memory training. So what he'll do is he will set up the rooms in the house that he's having the party in to be extremely thematically different. So like he'll give them very different layouts and different foods and drinks and all of that stuff. And then he'll have at least three or four distinct portions of the party. 
right? Where at this time you change to doing this other thing together. And by doing that, you make the party significantly more memorable because there are way more signposts from the party to, you know, say like, oh yeah, and then we did this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. And you can take a, you know, three hour party, make it feel like you had this huge day of events, right? Well, I've heard the same argument for uh, like planning dates. Yeah, that's that's where I was going to go next. <laughs> okay, yeah, going to multiple locations. Yep. As opposed to just staying in one, let's say you you just go to a bar and have a drink with somebody is very even if you stay for three hours is very different than going to three different bars. Right. It's almost like you went on a whole adventure. It's like Mark Manson's thing. He says uh, you should have a bar that you start at. And then if it's going well, you should have two other things you can easily transition into. It's good advice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say it's worked pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it is good advice, though. And even just from how you even look back at those dates, right? You just have a lot to remember. Right. Probably just some quirk of the brain of why our, our minds work that way. But yeah. Hey, can't change biology. You also definitely experience this on days where you do something huge, right? Like I moved out of my apartment last Tuesday. Right. And that's just, you know, an incredible amount of stuff. I mean, we woke up in the morning, got the truck, brought the truck back, packed the truck, dropped off our keys, drove to D.C., and then like got dinner with my family and hung out. It was just, you know, it felt like it took three days, but it was all in one day. And by the end of the day, it felt like, you know, an incredible number of things had happened. Right. But it was the same amount of time as any other day. It was just significantly more memorable because more signposts. More signposts. Exactly. Yep. So I think we can jump down a couple of paragraphs here. There's not a great transition to this. So I think we'll just jump <laughs> into it uh, because he he moves now into some of the talk about like racism and discrimination and stereotyping. Yep. And I love this point because this is a really interesting idea. He says, contrary to the pop ethical consensus, discrimination is not caused by having too many stereotypes, but too few. If you wake to find a live man dressed in all black standing over your bed and holding a katana, it may be quite reasonable to infer that he is a hired ninja and that you are in grave danger. If, however, you assume this about every East Asian man that you encounter, you lack nuance of stereotypes. Yeah, that's spot on. Yeah, because I think we've talked about this before, but stereotypes are useful and we're, we use them every day. The issue is when you have, again, overly narrow stereotypes, right? If you think that, uh, like, all white people are rich and privileged, like that's how you end up with Trump. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It's it's an issue when you're too narrow in how you stereotype, especially large groups. Right. Because you're naturally going to offend a huge number of them and you're going to make a lot of errors. And this is also why uh, once people know people from other groups, I feel like these stereotypes tend to, it's not that they have fewer stereotypes, it's that they expand their stereotypes. Yeah, they get more nuanced. Yeah, like if you've never met a white person, but all you've done is read other people talking about white people, you might be like, yeah, all white people are rich, right? But then you actually meet, which I feel like this is the opposite of what, like, this is probably a horrible example. If we use, like, let's say Indian people, for example, right? Um, you could, like, if you've never met an Indian person, you could be like, oh, they're all good at math. They're all like, they all talk with an accent they all you know whatever whatever stereotypes you want to they all sound like a poo whatever <laughs> stereotypes you want to you want to have but then if you meet like five indian people you're like oh okay like this guy might be good at math but then he also happens to sing or like, like you know there's might be you just meet like different types of people and you realize oh there's like I, my model is too narrow for what these people are right and it's probably true for every 
large group. Like if you think all men are one way, all right, that's probably also way too narrow. So yeah, there's, I, I totally agree. And that, that was a good way of him framing it where it's not, it's not about having too many stereotypes. It's that you have too few and that's what causes, that's what causes discrimination. Yeah. Well, cause he, he makes a good distinction here too, that race and gender are social constructs, but the cultural norms that correlate with race and gender, as well as goth prep, jock, et cetera, are real. So, you know, the, the terms we use for, you know, races in particular are basically made up distinctions, but a lot of the stuff that correlates with those distinctions are real. Like there, there is some truth to, you know, a lot of the distinctions we make between different cultures in particular, right? Yeah. But the, the lines that we draw to divide the cultures are fairly superficial. Exactly. And I think this is also something you realize the more you like get into any culture where it's like, you know, what's a good example? I mean, there's this Girardian terror element where the tighter you get within a group, the more intergroup kind of like conflict there is over trivial differences. So true. Yeah. Like rich white housewives in the Hamptons, you know, having their dramas, right. Even though they're all basically like extremely similar. Right. But judging each other on small differences or, uh, and this one's, it sounds kind of bad, but it was always really funny was, uh, Asian students at Carnegie Mellon with really bad accents shitting on the accents of other Asian students, huh. right? Like <laughs> for having slightly worse accents. I was like, it's such a strange thing to make fun of other people in your culture for, but okay. <laughs> I was going to say that what we were talking about even before this episode on the Patreon bonus material for those who are interested. Uh, yeah. We were talking about the carnivore diet and the yeah. different ways people define stuff. I could see, I could definitely see Twitter arguments over. That's a great example. Right? Like, it's like, oh, you're not doing real carnivore. You're because you, <laughs> you put butter. I have, you know, just meat and salt and water. It's like, oh, you put salt on it, bro. You're not doing carnivore. <laughs> like, so. But then, you know, to somebody very outside of that group, there's just, you know, crazy people on Twitter talking about eating meat, right? It doesn't matter if it's keto, paleo, carnivore or whatever. Right. To the, to the vegan community. It's those meat people. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, when you, like, have these biased stereotypes that on one level you know are not true, but that are just sort of like, you know, your experience has yet to give you more stereotypes for them, for lack of a better way yeah. of putting that. Uh, the the one that I always think of is Chinese tourists. Oh yeah, <laughs> like you know th- this sounds bad, obviously, but I've yet to go anywhere with a large number of Chinese tourists and not have a bad time, right? <laughs> and so it's like that stereotype is really strong, and yes, that stereotype needs more nuance and everything, but like that is simply a function of having very few. It is not the stereotype that's the problem; it's the other related experiences or the lack of other experiences that's the problem. Right. And all it would take would be like one incredible experience where you meet this amazing Chinese tour group and you just and you love it. Yeah. <laughs> We're like super respectful and they're not touching the paintings and not like shoving you out of the way. I'd be like, oh my God, my life has changed. Right. Or like taking it even one step further, like imagine if there was somebody in the tour group who just like was incredibly knowledgeable about the place you were at and was like telling you all about it. You might go like tell 50 people about how amazing this Chinese tour group was. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be telling thousands of people. I'd be coming on the podcast. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, yeah, it's funny. It's like, yeah, if all it would take would be like one experience and that would add one more stereotype to your 
portfolio, I guess. Right. And you would you would be, I guess, less. Uh, I'm gonna say discriminatory, but it's not like I, I do the exact same thing with Chinese tour groups. Yeah. Not gonna lie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I see one, I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Especially in museums. Oh god, museums are the worst. Museums and airports. I haven't actually experienced the airport. Maybe I have. Maybe, but the museum ones stand out a lot. Yeah. It's painful. I, I went to the I went to the Louvre you know, in France a year and a half ago. And it was just like remarkable how bad it was. This was two years ago now. I mean, it's yeah, it's like 80% of the people in there. And there's no respect for personal space or the art, right? They're like putting their kids on the sculptures and stuff. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was just like, whoa, 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 you should not be doing that. (laughs) Like Security basically couldn't keep up with everyone. It looked like they were really overworked. I was like, wow, this is is an odd experience. Come on, France. This is your your national treasure here. Seriously. But so, you know, bringing all of this back, what he what he goes on to say is that being aware of your biases is excellent advice because you should be aware of your biases, kind of like what we're talking about right now. But framing it as don't be racist, join or die fails. And it's infuriatingly counterproductive because it doesn't create a new stereotype to work with an alternative explanation for the genuinely felt observation. Right. So, you know, if, if we're having this conversation about Chinese tourists and then somebody else is sitting here and being like, hey, Nat, that's really racist. Don't say that. It doesn't actually help me. Right. Because all that tells me is like, oh, well, I should just go hang out with my other, you know, friends like Neil, who I can talk about this stuff with. Right. Right. Because there's there's no new stereotype. Right. But if somebody was like, you know, oh, I used to feel that way, too. But then, you know, I went to this area and you know, met this amazing Chinese tourist group and they were super respectful and they said like, yeah, it's a problem, but we're trying to be good examples. I'd be like, oh, cool. Okay. So maybe it's getting better, right? Like that would give me some new stereotype to work with. So this idea of like, oh, that's, you know, that's racist. Like, how can you think that way? Again, it doesn't help because there is these like genuinely felt observations. Stereotypes always come from somewhere. They're not made up, right? And you need more stereotypes to counteract the bad ones. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that it's like counterproductive is the right way. It's not not enough to just say not effective because it drives people away from even considering uh, because they get in trouble. Basically, there's like a negative incentive Yeah, for them to even like push the boundaries on this, push their their boundaries, not not the boundaries, but their, their boundaries. boundaries. Yeah, he's got this great line. The racists stay racist and now feel that society is out to get them. Hashtag MAGA. Right. Right. It's like if you if you tell half the country that you know, you're super privileged and you're like bad people because you're white. And they're like, uh, I make $20,000 a year and I'm overweight and like getting killed by opiates. Fuck you. Right. Like you've made the problem worse. And that's not like a good way to, you know, connect with a group that feels something right. Like, right. I mean, maybe a perfect example is the whole, I mean, like fear of Islam, right? So you've got a decent portion of the population that watches a lot of Fox News that thinks that like all Muslims are out to get them. Right. And if you just tell them like, hey, that's, you know, it's not a race, but hey, that's racist. Don't say that. And they'll be like, "Uh, I'm pretty sure they blew up the World Trade Towers. So, you know, I'm just going to keep talking about this with my friends in Fox News. You know, like you haven't given them a new stereotype about Muslims to replace that or to like augment that one. Exactly. Well, and then the other thing is the only stereotypes they're getting are like all the same. So it, ha- it reinforces it. Exactly. So that on the one side, they've got these stereotypes that make sense to their lived experience. And on the other side, they've got this group of people telling them they're terrible people. And so they're just going to say, like, right. all right, well, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to, you know, screw you guys over as much as possible for telling me I'm a bad person just because of this thing that, you know, I feel right. 
And that's really counterproductive. Well, and going back to one of the things he said at the beginning, the uh, eros, right? The belonging. Yeah. Feeling that's the opposite of it. You you would feel like you belong. Well, actually, like you wouldn't feel like you belong with the people calling you racist, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But you would feel like you belong with the other people who like. So basically, it, it disincentivizes growing your uh, the mental stereotypes that you have. Yeah. It's like an incentive to stay in the same place. He's got this good expansion on it later where he says that once acceptance becomes orthodoxy, even private dissent becomes grounds for ostracization. No matter your other convictions, you become a stereotype that society will single issue vote off the island. Of course, I support gay marriage. My point is that if one's views before were, well, it's kind of weird, then being told soon there will be enough of us that we won't have to deal with people like you at all. That makes homophobia logical. And at least you can change your opinion of gay marriage. It's much harder to change being white and low class. Right. It's kind of like what he's getting at here is that if you were raised super, you know, Christian and were very or Muslim or whatever, and we're very anti-gay and everyone's reaction to you being homophobic is like, whoa, you're a terrible person and not to try to talk about, you know, again, helping you build other stereotypes about gay people, then all you've done is fragmented society more, right? And for that person who, you know, before was just like, eh, you know, gay marriage seems kind of weird. And now they're being attacked for being, you know, questioning it at all. Right. That's just going to entrench them into their viewpoint because they're because now they're like, whoa, gay marriage is going to like expel me from society and I don't want that. So we need to prevent gay marriage. Right. Right. Exactly. And also it gives you a horrible first impression of the people who support it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, they are very angry people, <laughs> you know, but like, that's not, that's not true either, but it's just, it, that would be your impression if, because, you know, there's probably a small minority of people who would shout you off the island right. to use his term. <laughs> and, and we see this, you know, done on both sides, right? I, I think most oh, of the definitely. examples we've given so far are like fairly, maybe like conservative examples, but there's, you know, plenty of, of liberal versions of it too. Oh, like the flag is the best one or the flag or, or uh, kneeling during the national anthem. Is, yeah, is one. that's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. It's like if you if you say like, well, I don't understand what's wrong with that. Right. You will get vehemently attacked by the other side. Yeah. Which further would entrench you in your existing opinion of, OK, I don't you know, like it wouldn't convince you just to consider their opinion at all. Yeah. Well, and I think the the gun control discussion, you know, we had a whole episode on this, right? Yeah. Uh, Riddle of the gun from a while ago. Like, that's a great one, too, where, again, you know, most people will have a hard time talking about it reasonably. And so you just entrench people in being super pro or anti-gun because you can't talk in the middle. Right. And, you know, again, circling back to what we talked about at the beginning of this article, those very outragey ideas are more virulent, right? Because they're screamed on social media. And so people see those, they see them and they think they're the dominant memes. And so they feel the need to, again, like adopt and replicate them. And that's how you end up in this like crazy, you know, like yes or no black and white world of it's either like all guns for everyone or like no guns anywhere uh, on basically every issue. <laughs> Right. Well, that's a, that's a good example. But uh, <laughs> and uh, I think social media especially creates this other problem of like a um, what's the right way to put it? It it gives a, a false impression of 
the percentage of people who have one opinion or the other. Right. Uh, because there's probably a very small percentage of people who would care that much on any of these issues where they're shouting, you know, as loud as some people shout on social media, where you see their entire timeline is basically a single issue. Um, on either side, it doesn't have to be left or right, but either side. It, it reminds me of in the book we're covering next, which if you're part of Patreon, you will see. Um, he talks about how, uh, or the author talked about how um, many people confuse the amount of space left for, or like for crime, for example. And when they're reading the newspaper, they see that there's a lot of uh, words on the page devoted to crime, and they take that to mean that there's a lot of crime in their area. Right. So they confuse the number of words with the actual number of crimes. And, you know, I think we do the same. We make the same mistake with social media, where if we see a lot of tweets in our timeline about something, we think, oh, everybody's talking about this. Yeah. Right. But it's not necessarily everybody. It's just everybody who has tweeted is talking <laughs> about this. <laughs> and who you follow. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the second layer. <laughs> I had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago and he didn't know what intermittent fasting was. Right. Wow. Interesting. Very different bubble. Well, yeah. So that was the weird thing is that at first I was like, holy shit, you don't know what intermittent fasting is? Like, are you stupid? And then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and, then, and then I realized I was like, wait, it's actually weirder that I think that's weird, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, because that's definitely not common knowledge in the US, right? It just shows how intensely homogenous my like intellectual second degree friend bubble is, right? Right. Where everybody knows about the same stuff and is into the same stuff and like listens to the same podcast. And it's like, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Right. But it's, you know, much easier to do now. <laughs> Yeah, one of my one of my first couple weeks uh, when I first started working with Este, I used YC in a conversation, and like the person waited until the end to be like to ask me like what the hell YC was. Oh yes, <laughs> and I, I I like yeah, I just did not cross my mind that people wouldn't know what that was, but probably most people, if you surveyed people, like would not know what YC stood for. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, getting back to the the stereotypes and the racism and everything, right? Like he, this is where some of the bigotry almost like makes sense for lack of a better term, because he says, you know, no one is ever born hateful. Stranger anxiety doesn't even start till six months, but culture war is history being written by the winners. First draft conservatives are offered the choice of fighting the ever changing tides of social values or toiling away in obscurity while journalists pretend to like soccer. People want to be understood, <laughs> and they will rage all sorts of ways against the dying of the light. And this this being understood element is really big, because I think there is this whole aspect of, uh, oh, you know, he gets into it in the next section, so I'll, I'll read that first and then expand on this. The upper middle class, mostly urban, mostly blue, claims by far the largest share of America's income, more than the middle class and far more than the 1%. This, despite the protests to the contrary, gives them disproportionate control over the entertainment industry, both Hollywood and the Times, which in cyberpunk America is tantamount to controlling the culture, right? So you've got a liberal urban culture that dominates the media, and then you've got a more rural conservative culture that feels constantly misunderstood and misrepresented by the media. and. Right. That, you know, leads to some of this rage and it leads to, you know, I think what we've seen with Trump, where it's everybody wants to be understood and they want to feel like they have control. And you've got a significant group of people who feel like they're being misrepresented and that they have no control. And so what do they do? They take control however they can. 
Well, and taking it one step further, it shows that in almost like the hierarchy of needs that need to be understood is, is I would, I mean, based on actions, I would argue can even be more than economic interests, which is why when everybody says, you know, oh, these like conservatives in the middle of nowhere always vote against their own economic interests. It's like, yeah, but they probably feel understood with Trump, right? Or some of these other politicians who are speaking, you know, at least when they're speaking, they're speaking on their behalf or they're they're at least at least speaking about issues that they understand, as opposed to like, you know, a coastal liberal would probably be talking about issues that, you know, sort of Midwest uh, steel town type of person, right? Wouldn't even care about. Yeah. Well, that, that whole, oh, they always vote against their interest is ridiculous because you're assuming that they have the exact same value set that you have, right? Exactly. Which they clearly don't because they, you know, they care about different things, right? A lot of, I think rural families will care more about, uh, and I guess I shouldn't say rural, I should say conservative families will care more about maintaining like conservative social policies than they care about, you know, how they are going to benefit from some of the tax stuff, right? Yeah, or even like, well, and and this is also where it's hard to put the labels on it. Because yeah. like, we've, I, I just was having this conversation with somebody like about the tariffs uh, that are being imposed, like that is inherently not a like Republican thing right. that someone would do. But in the like, potentially the Republican Party is changing in makeup. Right. And uh, becoming more of obviously, well, not potentially has obviously in the last election changed quite a bit, but it's becoming like a lot more populist, almost like an old school Democrat party and tariffs were their big thing. So it's yeah, it's been it's kind of interesting where when we say, oh, they're like, like we use the labels conservatives or liberals or Democrats, Republicans, it's like you obviously have to draw the line somewhere, but it's it always misrepresents who the actual people are on the ground. Yeah, very true. I had the same conversation in the UK, funny enough, about uh, Brexit, where it reminded me so much of like, it was like Trump flashback. Yeah. Where like, yeah, a lot of the people in London view the people who voted for Brexit as like insane. But it's kind of like how, you know, you ask the average person in New York about (laughs) the people who voted for Trump and they obviously don't get it either. Yeah. Well, and that's actually another perfect example of kind of just not having enough stereotypes. Right. Right. Where it's like I've been in so many conversations where people, you know, mostly like urban liberals will say stuff like, oh, well, you know, Trump voters are like so stupid and so uninformed and they're just like, you know, racist, sexist, overweight, you know, rural Republicans like don't know what they're doing. And that's just like such a lazy stereotype to have right caricature yeah caricature right it's like you got to try to be a little bit more generous than that i think right and just like i guess every liberal is not a uh you know a student from middlebury <laughs> with three genders yeah exactly well it's like did you did you see that 538 article about the misperceptions of republicans and democrats by the other party no it's really good i'll i'll try to dig it up and send it to you uh I think it's in one of my medleys. Okay. But basically the actually no, I think it's in an upcoming medley. But anyway, then I'll wait. I'll I'll be on the edge of my seat. But it's uh it's basically like something like Republicans think 40% of Democrats are LGBT and you know it's really like 6%. Oh wow. And Democrats think that like 25% of Republicans are making over 120k a year, but really it's like 6% and you know, just like all of these different things, right? Like Democrats think way more Republicans are really Christian, but it's a much lower percentage. It's all of this stuff, right? We have these very warped perceptions of the other party. And so again, you know, it's like you need more stereotypes. 
Exactly. Uh, and this is kind of where he starts to get more into some of the race stuff, right? Or like he's already beginning into race stuff, but now he's talking about how it relates to the uh, like dominant culture in society. So he says, I'm saying that the specific way the media talks about race and culture, creating an incoherent set of rules regarding appropriation and etiquette, proudly crying out that this is the end of those boring, selfish white people has made the situation much, much worse. If the left wanted to prevent assimilation, there would be no more effective way. So basically by saying that you have to follow all of these like new rules and everything is an appropriation or a microaggression or whatever, you're just sort of making it easier for white people to throw up their hands and say like, all right, screw this. I'm just going to be racist. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And especially with the focus on, you know, oh, white people are bad and white people have been taking advantage of everyone and all of that. And like to whatever extent that is true, historically, it is not a way to get people to join your team. Well, the thing that I always find, you know, speaking from a non-white perspective that like, you know, just in case people really care about that, <laughs> um, <laughs> that I always find to be like absurd, right? It's like, yeah, it's white people, but it's not like the same white people. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great way of framing it. Like you were not a colonist. <laughs> like Nat Eliason was not a colonist. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I don't even see why it's relevant. And also like every culture has had just really fucked up things. Yeah. Like there's not a culture on the planet that doesn't have a fucked up history. Like humans are like, there are some messed up people in every culture. So it's like, if you really want to play that game, right, you end up back at the same place where you are, where everybody is bad. Right. <laughs> and either everybody's bad or like we can just let all this past stuff go. Right. And like judge people on, on how they are today. Yeah. And who they are today instead of looking at like what their ancestors might have done and trying to make them pay for that. Like it's a very almost like biblical way of, uh, not biblical, but like, a, I don't know, ancient way of trying to punish people. Yeah. It's like, oh, your ancestors did this. So we're going to punish you and your entire line of descendants for this. Well, and no, you know, disadvantaged group has ever reached a comparable level to the dominant group by forcing the dominant group to give up power. Like that's not really how assimilation for lack of a better term has worked historically right i mean dude even if you look at america yeah <laughs> right like i would actually say tacos are pretty mainstream culture like you probably got like the most red people in texas they probably still eat tacos right like yeah tacos are like almost you know they've, they've been assimilated into american culture and in that way they've changed american culture like it wasn't by saying that oh like X percent of your meals have to be Mexican food. Yeah, or you can't eat hamburgers because <laughs> right. they're invented by white people and they're bad. I don't know if that's even true, but it seems, it seems American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, it's more like bottom up. I mean, another perfect example that I think we're seeing right now is Asians in America, right? Yep. You know, the, the highest earning group in America is Asian men, right? It's not white men. Yeah, it's not even Jewish men. Asian men. <laughs> Asians and Jews, I think both have succeeded not by like forcing anyone to change to fit them, but by just being better at the game as it already exists. Right. I, you know, and Asians are actually being punished for it with all the Harvard stuff. Yeah. We should put that in the show notes. We should put that article in the show notes. I didn't know about that till you, uh, till you and Coco told me. Yeah. They're like, they're too much better at <laughs> the, the <laughs> games established in America so that, you know, so Harvard's being racist to them the same way it was racist to the Jews in the early 1900s, right? Like that is how you 
change the dominant group is by like winning at their games, uh, not by getting them to stop playing, because that's just going to entrench their existing position and their existing aversion to letting you play. So even letting you play. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like if you're I, I mean, I think like here's a perfect example, right? You can you can have protests and throw a fit and stuff about there not being enough Asian actors in movies, or you can make crazy rich Asians, right? Right, exactly. Which, from all indications, is going to be an incredibly successful movie. Seems like it, yeah. With an all-Asian cast, and that's going to prove that, like, oh, okay, like, you can do an all-Asian cast, and it's going to go fine, right? Right, and, like, Black Panther. Black Panther was similar. Yeah, Black Panther is a perfect example, too, right? Yep. Where it's like, all right, you know, there you can do a pretty much all-Black cast, and, like, it's still going to go super well, Right. Right. That's how you change, you know, the quote unquote power structure. You don't like get everyone to give up their power. You just show them that you can like beat them at their game. Right. I mean, I'd read something about Jackie Robinson, who is I think he was the first black player in playing professional baseball or at least MLB. Correctly, I don't know if I'm wrong, if I'm right on that. So I think that's right. Someone let me know if I'm right, right or wrong on that. I think he was. But the, the thing I'd read about him was when they were bringing him up. The I think the coach or the manager who had brought him up, you know, knew what he was doing and that this guy was going to be, you know, things were going to be thrown at him at stadiums and people were going to say stuff to him and, you know, be basically be very racist towards mm-hmm. him. And the manager uh, had a conversation with him and said, son, I want to make sure you want it enough that you're not going to, you know, like give them a reason to send you back down. Right. Like that you want it so bad that you're not going to play into the stereotype that they already have in their head of how you're going to react. Right. Right. So they want, like they want you to get, like if they're going to throw stuff at you and say racist things towards you, they want you to get angry and walk into the stands and beat somebody up. Right. So he was trying to make sure that this, this guy is like, he wants it so bad and is going to, you know, sort of like break their stereotype. Yeah. Well, he's going to give them new stereotypes. Exactly. Yeah. I guess not break their stereotype, give them a new stereotype. Right. And here's like, yeah. And then that, that paves the way for more people. Otherwise, like if the first person who comes in, acts that way and you know probably justifiable right <laughs> like if people are throwing stuff at you and and saying stuff to you like it's it's a the logical response is to react in an angry way which is what they expect right but by doing something different you give them a new stereotype and then that paves the way for maybe acceptance down the road from for other people to come up yeah yeah you're totally right like it's not like crazy rich asians was a great example i hadn't thought of that but that's things like that being successful break the stereotype or add a new stereotype of hey we can do movies like this and and it will uh, it will make money and it can still be successful. Exactly. It's not like a law, right? <laughs> that you have to make a movie with X number of uh, minority characters. Like that's not going to work. Yeah, I don't know, but I feel like you can tell when movies are doing that, right? Or I don't know. You ever look at the TV show or the cast of a TV show, and it seems like a little bit too perfectly diverse, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Where it's just like it's suspiciously well balanced. And you're like, A, I've never seen a group hang out that is that, you know, perfectly balanced. And B, it's like you've obviously like gone to some length here to make that happen. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just like it's obvious when it happens. Right. Right. I was going to say something here. Oh, yeah. Well, so this is the other point that he he brings up is that there there is this element to with that even of the diversity kind of being a sham, right? Because, I mean, even sticking with the movie example, uh, he says, ergo, you decide to hire some minority writers to write your minority characters. 
applications rush in? How are you going to decide who makes the cut? You know, the usual interview, letters of recommendation, college transcript. At every step of the social hierarchy, what is required for a person of color or a woman to succeed is determined by the values of the ruling class. I think that's white patriarchal supremacy. Of course, the same principle applies to homosexuals and Jews. Thankfully, those traits are easier to hide, right? Uh, and then going on a bit more, there's a case to be made for affirmative action, but you know who gets the scholarship? Whoever can best conform to the in-demand stereotype. Yep. Right. So there, there is that element of a lot of this kind of diversity kind of being like fake. I mean, I noticed it most in college, right, where you get incredible like racial diversity, but the intellectual diversity is extremely shallow, right? You're not right. getting like poor white Americans for the most part, right? You're getting almost none of them. You're not getting, you're not even getting that many like poor blacks or Latinos from the U S you're getting like the rich blacks and Latinos and Asians and Arabs from other countries, right? Who probably went to American schools in those countries. Exactly. And are basically exactly the same as all of like the white kids I went to boarding school with, right? Right. They grew up watching the same shows, reading the same books. Yeah. Like wearing the same brands probably too. It's like, sure, you you checked the diversity, you know, the the check mark. And it's like, oh, we got a kid from the Middle East, but you could have like painted them white and put them in Exeter and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference, right? There's like no <laughs> real cultural diversity there. It's one of those things where you almost know it when you are in a conversation with somebody. Like I'm sure you've had this where you're talking to somebody and you're like, this person has almost nothing, like our backgrounds, like we have almost nothing in common. Yeah. Those conversations can be, I find they either go one of two ways. They're either fascinating or if you can't even find like even a, anything to latch onto, they can be they they like sometimes you just they aren't that interesting, right? Because you can't find any commonality. But some of the best conversations I've ever had, I feel like, are with people who on paper might not have a lot in common with, and their experiences might be you know way way different from mine. And that's when it's not paper diversity; it's like true diversity. Yeah. Well, I was talking about this with um, his name's Ben Nelson. He's the guy who founded uh, Minerva which is like, okay, yep. yeah, the, the alternative college. And he was saying that a lot of the extracurricular stuff that, you know, is required for applying to colleges is mostly a way to weed out poor people. Because hmm, interesting, if you're poor, you can't afford to, you know, do crew after school, you have to work and take care of your family. And so it's a way to, you know, colleges can say they're need blind. But if you do crew and tennis, you're more likely to get in, right? Right. And, you know, there's not a lot of poor people playing tennis on the weekends. So right, exactly. you end up, you know, saying you're shooting for diversity. But again, you know, who can best conform to the in-demand stereotype, right? Like who can be the whitest black person, right, is basically right. what these schools are op optimizing around because they want the appearance of diversity without actually threatening Again, the the memes of the institution, right? Yeah, or these or these people who are on they lets them check off the diversity box, but then they're still playing a game that is, I guess, the existing hierarchy. Yeah. Right. So they're they're winning that game, but they're not coming from a different they're not changing the hierarchy. Right. And then I mean the Or I guess I guess to I guess sorry, just to correct myself no, on one thing. The hierarchy the people who control the hierarchy are not changing it to conform actual diversity. They're just letting the exist the same hierarchy happen but then checking off a diversity box like they're not actually changing how the game is judged well and i think this is like actually this is a big problem with the general focus on diversity is that 
it can end up kind of hurting the people it's supposed to help. Because you would think that the goal of something like affirmative action is to, you know, support people in America who do not have the means to get access to great educations, right? But if it turns into, you know, it's like what what I would see a lot at boarding school was that the kids who got into the best colleges were like the rich kids from African or South American or Middle Eastern countries, right? It's like you don't get into Stanford, but the rich kid from Buenos Aires does, right? Because he checks off like a diversity requirement, (laughs) Right. And I mean, really, the idea with affirmative action should be that it's going to like the poor inner city, you know, white, black, Jew, whatever. Right. But that's not who's getting the benefit of it. And then they end up getting hurt because the spot, you know, it's like these schools are going to take enough of, you know, X group to check a box and then they're probably going to stop. Right. And so if if the schools have a history of not taking enough, I don't know, like. Uh, Mexican students and then they take you know three rich kids whose parents do like medical devices in Mexico City uh, then that actually hurts pretty much all of the Latin American students applying from you know the the less well-off parts of the U.S. Right like I know obviously this is a simplistic example because it'd be hard to screen for this yeah but you know it would be really interesting if CMU was able to or, or any you know let's say top tier college was able to figure out a way to accept a student who maybe had like not a like I'll say the SAT is out of 2,400. I don't even know if they still take the SAT. They might be doing ACTs now uh, mainly, but let's say instead of 2,400, the student got like a 1,600 or maybe a 1,700 or something like that on their SAT. Mm-hmm. But they come from like a poor inner city and there were, I don't know how, this is where the problem comes. How do you screen for it? Is it the essay? Is it the recommendations? Is it the interview? I don't necessarily know what's the what's the best method, but there are, let's say you just like didn't have the time to really study for the SAT because we know people take like classes for the SAT and parents hire tutors and well you could take it multiple times too you can take it multiple times right there's like all these things that go into it yeah I just be really like there are uh, you and I definitely know people who were not the best students but who are doing incredibly well in life Mm -hmm. and you don't meet those people in college yeah you don't (laughs) you know like i wonder is there a way to get those like i don't know if a college can ever make that happen but that's a phenomenon we've definitely seen exist yeah where colleges just they miss all of those people and it's because of how they're doing their screening but obviously i don't necessarily i don't know like what's the solution to it yeah above my pay grade well and (laughs) there's this great point he makes a little bit farther down too that uh says, consider the amount of energy the school system spends on teaching the approved answers to why questions as opposed to how questions, like how to balance a checkbook and how to feed oneself, with the assumption that if you reach the upper class, you will be able to pay someone to do those practical skills for you. And if you don't, hey, there's always food stamps. Think carefully (laughs) about whether this mode of education is likely to make society more meritocratic or less, right? It's very... Like zero sum. Yeah. And, and it's also very, I mean, like we see this a lot with kids graduating from college and they got like a liberal arts degree or a business degree and they didn't learn anything useful and now they can't get hired. And so they're a barista anyway, but they're a barista with $150,000 in debt, right? That's not right. a situation you want to be in. Exactly. Yeah. And the debt part makes that extra difficult. Yeah. Um, I just finished reading. Oh, because now it takes me months to finish a pleasure book <laughs> because of all of our reading. Yep. But I read uh, the author, Tom Robbins, wrote a book called uh, Tibetan Peach Pie. Okay. It's like a memoir. It's kind of a memoir, but it's also just like 
he's like a funny writer in general. So it's like a little humorous. And like, I didn't realize he didn't really get his first book published, meaning he didn't get an advance until he was like in his mid thirties. And he was a writer before that. He was, like, uh, he was writing articles and had a few, you know, like paid gigs, but he was like very, very poor <laughs> and living in New York for a time and Seattle for a time and out of his car for a time. And I remember thinking, it is after graduating from college. And I, as I was reading that part, I was like, this probably couldn't happen today because of student debt. Yeah. Like you couldn't graduate with a like a creative writing degree and just sort of bum it for eight years while you wait or, you know, while you write and work on your novel that you hope will be your big break. Like, I mean, I don't even know how one would do that today. If you if you had student debt, right? Maybe you don't. Right. Maybe you don't. But yeah, but then obviously that brings up another question. Like <laughs> you were in a privileged position to not have student debt then. Yeah. Well, and there is this element too of like the the privileged class is the one railing hardest against privilege. Right. Where, uh, let's see, uh, these gifted but troubled people will bumble through their whole lives, getting second through 10th chances, mysteriously finding that anything involving an authority figure goes their way as they ruthlessly condemn capitalist injustice, never realizing that criticizing privilege <laughs> is the language of privilege. Right. And it goes back to that like Girardian in group, you know, hypocrisy that we talked about earlier, where it's, you know, kids at Harvard accusing other Harvard kids of having privilege. Right. It's it's insanity. Right. Like even if you, you know, had to like find food on the street for the first 18 years of your life, once you're at Harvard, you're privileged. Right? There's really no way of challenging that at that point, because there's basically no greater advantage in life I think you can have at the age of 18 besides having like a hundred million dollars. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like the, the peak of the hierarchy between ages zero and 18. Yeah. Right. Is like getting into a top, like obviously Harvard is like, you know, but Harvard is the name. Yeah, you get like Harvard, Stanford, IIT, any of those like, yep. You're at the top of the pyramid. Your art is most understood. Right. Cause everyone understands yeah. Harvard. All right. And so you're the most privileged. It might not have been true for the first 18 years, but then once you're in there, yeah, you're on like, well, I just mean society. Yeah, exactly. Like you're starting the next level of the game at the high, like at the highest level. Yeah. You're starting with cheat codes on. Exactly. And so we're coming up on the end here. Uh, I, I like what he starts to get to, which is basically that. And I'll just read this paragraph because I think it's really good. Those who feel persecuted for thought crime are those who should be pushing hardest for diversity, real diversity as opposed to a slick brochure of the indebted. Such diversity of ideas was what made America great. Not that we haven't punished people for race and sex and religion and a million other insane reasons that are not bad behavior. But even so, America is the country of the stolen sample and the conspiracy theory, a nation of ingenuity and creation like no other. While the white ethno states or Scandinavian social democracies you all want to move to have created, I think, Avicii. That's unfair and sentimental, I know. I just don't want that thing about you that I like to change. Like wealth, class should not be treated as a zero-sum game. There should not be a single ladder of correct beliefs. Having more ideas, even bad ideas, allows more ways to self-actualize and has worth in of itself. Yeah. Well, and there's there's another thing uh, that we, I think it was right in the section right before this, mm -hmm. or maybe the paragraph right before this, which was, I thought, really interesting and kind of uh, opposed to, not opposed, but definitely at odds with Beginning of Infinity. I'm just going to read it from the from the article. History has a progression, but it's not an arc. It's a spiral. God strikes down the tower. The democratic virus burns through society. We move towards a single language. The masses cry now nothing will be withholden from them. And God strikes down the tower once more. This is predestined by the very fact that each human being is unique. 
When you impose one language, one value system, when you hold someone back from that desperate desire to be understood, don't expect that person's God to forgive you. I guess it's not at odds with the beginning of infinity, but it's, uh, I mean, in some ways I can see it being, but basically I think what he's trying to say here is, you know, we view like today's progression, like I would say the upper middle class, uh, mostly urban, mostly blue vision for what the future will look like. We hold that to be kind of like our self-evident future. Yeah. And, you know, there are, I think what he's trying to say is there's other groups out there who have a very different viewpoint and value system. And when we sort of bulldoze over that, you know, I like this way of putting it. Don't expect that person's God to forgive you. Yeah. Well, that that image that as you try to build this, you know, Tower of Babel with, you know, one coherent set of memes and all others are not allowed. It's easy to imagine, you know, all of the outcasts conspiring to destroy that tower. Right. Right. Because nobody wants to feel like their beliefs are not allowed. Right. Like they're bad people for these, you know, stereotypes that, again, going back to before, are unnuanced, but are based in experience and, you know, just need greater data. Right. And I think that's how we can see this, how we can see some of this like outrage in response to ideas and especially into trying to enforce ideas. Right. It's like all the outrage culture stuff we're seeing right now is encapsulated so well in, in this idea. And, and especially this idea that like there there should not be a single ladder of correct beliefs. Having more ideas, even bad ideas, allows more ways to self-actualize. Yeah. Right? Like there is a lot of, you know, none of this stuff is like de facto true. Right. There's so much nuance in the world. Yeah, so much nuance. Like yeah, we, every time we talk about the nutrition stuff, right, it's like to think there's one, like this is the the diet, right? Is a <laughs> yeah. It's a tough thing, it, right? It's a very tough thing because, yeah, there are general rules, but then... I think he brings it up in an earlier section, right? Every human being is different. And so what might work for your body wouldn't be different from my body. And, you know, that's the difficulty in being like a, I'm not saying any of us do this, but like, or anybody listening to the show does this, but being a uh, carnivore diet warrior or whatever diet warrior you are on Twitter isn't necessarily going to help yeah. spread your meme. So, but yeah, this was an awesome article. Yeah. Should we, should we go ahead and wrap it up? Cause this is one last section that's, excellent to end on i think yeah yeah so i think this is this is the prescription right so you know having gone through the article and you know, listen to us talk like what do you do he says what's the solution there's only one and it is so radical that i hesitate to even suggest it stop being a pleb you stop treating words as a substitute for action stop paying time and money into institutions that loan a symbol of mastery in lieu of actual depth Stop looking for such symbols in others. Stop judging policies by the veneer of good intention rather than the details of consequence. Stop looking past people because this is all the same, isn't it? Working from a map, a stereotype, a symbol, instead fighting for the complex truth? None of this horror requires malice or even stupidity. All it requires is taking the easy way out. Amazing. Yeah. There's, there's so much great writing in this essay. And you know what? If you've listened this far, it will take you less time than this to read it. So just go read it. You'll you'll love it. Right. Well, and I was going to say, I highly recommend reading it. Like we we didn't even get to, I mean, we got to like a, a lot of the big points, but a lot of the enjoyment from this article is just going to come from reading it. There's so many just like funny tidbits. Yeah. The, the narrative style is just so fun. Exactly. <laughs> there's just some lines that you're reading like a long paragraph and then all of a sudden he throws just a masterful like, joke or burn in there somewhere (laughs) yeah yeah and all of his writings like that so once you start getting into it i 
expect a lot of people will start going through the archives. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bump up his traffic a bit. Yeah, although he he probably doesn't care about such things. I feel like he's above that. Eh, everybody cares about their traffic. Feels good. There was a minute when I thought it was Nat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was you. I'm not quite this. I'm not quite this good of a writer. I was like Nat. Well, no, because yeah, like there's not. If you start going through the archives, there's not too many posts. Yeah. I was like, Nat's been so busy with writing and <laughs> his company and, and reading for me. you think like obviously he doesn't have enough time to write posts on here. It's my secret side blog. <laughs> <laughs> then I saw it was Tumblr and I was like, eh, yeah, that's probably, probably not Nat. Although he would want me to think it's not him. Yeah. And he would pick a platform that he would never use. You're getting too close <laughs> to the truth. We better move on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Uh, we actually recorded a ton of bonus material for this one. Probably, I think almost 20 minutes. Yeah, it's a good one. And uh that's all going to be in the Patreon. So uh, if you're not already supporting us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash made you think you'll get the bonus recordings for the episode. You'll get our detailed notes on the article, uh, including all of our bolding and highlighting and everything. Uh, you'll see which articles are coming up and you can also uh, join us for our monthly hangouts. So we already did the first one of those. It was super fun. Uh, we'll be doing another one in like mid September. So just be sure you're uh, signed up before that so that you can uh, get access to that. The other big benefit is that you can talk about all the episodes with us. So we're in there. We're commenting. You know, we can you can share thoughts, articles. We can chat about stuff there. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, you can go to patreon.com slash made you think. Thank you to everybody who has joined. Yes. So far, there's a bunch of you guys and we love you. We do. You're our best friends. And you, too, can be our best friend by joining the Patreon. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing it because we don't like interrupting the show with ads. It doesn't feel natural. We don't want to have to do pre-roll, post-roll. We don't ever want to have to compromise something we're saying because it might, you know, not be okay to our advertisers. It just feels like a much more natural model. And, you know, Neil and I both always skip over the ads when we uh, listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it feels like a better experience for everyone involved. So, yeah, we, we appreciate everyone who's already contributing there and for everyone who will join after this episode as well. Aside from that, if you, you know, if you really don't want to contribute through Patreon, uh, we do have a support page on the site, majorthinkpodcast.com slash support with a few sponsors and people who, you know, help make this show happen as well. So you can check that out. Even if you are on the Patreon, you can still check that out. Yeah, you can do that too. You know, <laughs> do your shopping on Amazon through us. It's a free way to help the show. But the biggest thing you can do is uh, just tell your friends, you know, if you're enjoying this show. If uh, you like what we're doing here, let your friends know about it. If you've got a blog or a podcast yourself and you want to share it there, you know, we incredibly appreciate that. If you want to tweet about it, if you want to tweet at us, you know, we we love getting in conversations on Twitter about this. We've done at least a few books now that we discovered from listeners like you. So we, we are paying attention. Yeah, a bunch of them. And I find that, well, it's also interesting just getting into some of this, the discussions with people. Yeah. Afterwards, even after the episode, people find things that we got wrong that they sent to us or, you know, other ideas or perspectives, you know, especially when we're talking about stuff like the printer is going in the background. I'm just going to let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Facts is alive and well in in the Eliasson household. Exactly. (laughs) You know, Neil and I have our, our life perspective, but that's obviously fairly limited. And so, you know, anybody out there with other perspectives on anything we're talking about is like really interesting to hear. And we love that. So, right. Yeah, I forget. Uh, I, I'm not going to call it the the handle, but there was someone from one of our past episodes who sent me like 10 links on Twitter, which I started going through some of them. I saved a bunch of them to pocket and I haven't gone through those yet. Sorry. Uh, but I have looked at a couple of them. And, you know, it was like, I think we came at it from a 
uh, this was for like UBI, uh, okay. so some of the UBI episodes. Uh, we came at it from a, you know, from like Andrew Yang's perspective, obviously, because we read his book and talked to him. But this, there were a few other perspectives on UBI that were still pro UBI, but just from different angles, like more from like a left wing side, even though I know Andrew Yang's running as a Democrat, right? Like he often talks about it. I, I would say more from a like utilitarian perspective. And this was more from a left wing side. And it was, you know, pretty interesting. And I haven't gone into all the links yet, but it was just perspective we didn't get into on any of the episodes. So anyway, without digressing too much, um, we love getting that kind of stuff after we record. So it expands our horizons too. Exactly. So with that, I think that's it. Oh, Is anything else? They can leave a review. Oh, yeah. So that would also be super helpful. Leaving a review and telling your friends. That's that's huge. Yep. So reviews are super helpful. Uh, we got some feedback that you guys like the uh, occasional interview or discussion episode with an author or some other person to join us. So having reviews really, really helps that because it shows the outside world that you guys actually exist. Yes. <laughs> so, and it makes us feel good when you say nice things about us in public on the internet. We like that. Exactly. Psh, we weren't supposed to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. Cool. Well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, um, tweeting me is probably the best option. I am at the real Neil S. And I am at Nat Eliason. And we will see you all next week. See you next week.